Thank you, Carmen. Love when she reads. You know, it's more than just reading the Word that we need. It's, it's internalizing the Word, right? It's letting the Word come into our hearts. And uh, that's what I get when I hear Carmen read and all the others. I appreciate each of you who participate in reading the Scripture for us. Well, go ahead and draw your swords if you haven't already. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. We continue in this study out of the uh, Gospel of Matthew. We are making good progress. And uh, here again we find Jesus who is being confronted right out of the gate by the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now think about that. They're coming to Jesus and asking him to show them a sign from heaven. These guys are relentless. This is the 10th time that the scribes and Pharisees have either questioned, criticized, or they have conspired against Jesus. We already heard uh, prior that they were wanting to go away and figure out a way to destroy Jesus. So they are out to get him. They're talking about a sign. They want Jesus to perform a sign. Forget about the fact that he's already been doing miracle after miracle. I mean, he took 5,000 people, that would be men, and then plus women and children, 4,000 men plus women and children. That's 9,000 men plus women and children. If there's just two more, you know, one child and one woman for every man, that's 27,000 people. And he fed them with 12 loaves of bread and a half dozen fish. And yet they're coming and asking for a sign from heaven. Notice, they said, show us a sign. It was thought among the Jews that, that even the devil could perform a wonder or a sign on earth. But only God could perform a sign from heaven. And so that's why they're coming. By nature, every person is spiritually born blind. These men are spiritually blind. And they're the leaders of the Jewish religion. When you're spiritually blind, you can't see the truth. Therefore, you have to ask for a sign of the truth. I want something that I can visibly see so that I can know that it's true. When in reality, even if they saw it, they wouldn't believe it. They're asking for a sign from heaven, and yet standing in front of them is Jesus Christ, who came out of heaven, God incarnate, but they're spiritually blind. They're spiritually blind. It's interesting to me, those who, were ne who will never see spiritually are those who have never opened their eyes to see. They might have physical sight, but they've never been able to see spiritually speaking. Everybody falls in one of two categories. Either you're a person who is spiritually blind and you cannot see God and you will never see God, or you're a person who is born spiritually blind, but God opens your eyes and by the Holy Spirit, he enables you to see who he is and to come into relationship with God. Everybody on the earth falls into one of those two places. 
You're either spiritually blind and you'll never see, or you're a spiritual blind person who God has opened the eyes of, and now you do see who he is. The person who rejects Christ is blind for all eternity, and the one who confesses Jesus as Lord, he receives spiritual sight, not only to see the truth, but come into relationship with that truth. If only the world would seek spiritual sight the way they seek physical sight. People who are losing their sight go to a doctor quickly. That's nothing to play around with. Physical sight. Everybody desires it. In other countries, many people are blind and they have no recourse. There's no doctor to go see. And yet, the same people will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which would give them spiritual sight from spiritual blindness, but they not only turn away from it, they have no desire to hear it. This is the world that we live in. The vast majority don't want to hear the gospel, and they have had it explained to them, and it's done nothing for them. You know people like that who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet they never changed. They didn't get it. You took your time, you explained it, you tried to really draw out the gospel and show them their condition apart from Christ, and yet they look at you like you're a three-headed monster. What are you talking about? That's, that's very common today. And in fact, John chapter 1, verse 9 says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the, here it is, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They chose spiritual blindness, spiritual darkness. Romans, Paul said, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, creation, so that they, all human beings who are spiritually blind, are without an excuse for their blindness. He went on and said, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. If you're spiritually blind and you desire not to see the light, not to come to Christ on his terms of peace, then God is likely to hand you over to your blindness for all eternity. That is a judgment of a sovereign God. Three times in that chapter, chapter 1, God handed them over. He first hands them over to sensuality. Then he hands them over to sexual immorality. Then he hands them over to sexual perversion. In other words, in their blindness, in their darkness, they did not want the truth. They wanted their own foolish speculations and ideas and thinking. And each time God said, okay, I'll give it to you. Go for it. And finally, their heart is so hardened that now they cannot receive the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul said, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Unless the Spirit of God opens the truth to a person, they cannot appraise spiritual things. Some of you might be here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Carmen read the last part 
of this chapter, denying self, picking up your cross, following Jesus, total surrender to Christ. You've never done it. You've been around the church. You've heard the gospel. You've heard preaching. And yet you've never surrendered to Christ. I I want to very uh, cautiously, carefully, and respectfully say to you, you're in spiritual darkness. You're spiritually blind. And the only hope is that God would turn the light on in your heart and you see the truth of his word. Otherwise, you will die in your sins. You'll face an eternity in hell. I, that's, this is not a message to try to preach hell, damnation, fire that would turn you to God. I'm not trying to fearfully turn you to God. I'm just telling you objectively, logistically, based on Scripture, this is the reality. This is the reality. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul said this, being darkened in their understanding, they excluded the life of God. Uh, They were excluded from the life of God. Here it is. Because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, that's why they've been excluded from the light. Because they chose the darkness. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They can't see. Jeremiah was speaking of the sin and rebellion of Israel when he said they have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. What is it that causes a man or a woman to be spiritually blind? What is it? There's three things. Write these down. Number one, sin. Sin in our lives is what causes us to remain spiritually blind. John 3.19, write that verse down. John 3.19, let me read it for you. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Sin is why they love the darkness more than the light. Sin will keep you from God. It will entangle you. It will hold you. It will rob you of freedom and liberty in Jesus Christ. Sin. Let me give you another cause for spiritual blindness. Satan himself. Satan. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is blinding the eyes of the unbelieving. He doesn't want the unbeliever to see. I'm preaching a sermon this morning, teaching from God's word about spiritual darkness the importance of coming into spiritual light, leaving spiritual blindness and and being able to see spiritually a life in Christ, what it is. And yet some of you will go to lunch and on the way to lunch you'll have a conversation say, what was he talking about? That stuff made no sense to me because Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving A person who now is open to the message of the gospel has the opportunity by the Holy Spirit to come into relationship with Jesus. But a person who walks in darkness and has no desire 
to change. They are unbelieving. Satan's blinded them. That's why when we pray for our lost family members and pray for our lost friends, here's how we should pray. Lord, open their eyes to see. I'm just telling you, it's not going to be the cute way you share the gospel. It's not going to be some church service that's, listen, only God can open the eyes of the blind. Only God can set someone free from captivity and darkness. Pray that God would turn the light on in their life. You remember what it was like when you came to Christ and the light came on? Prior to that, you too were in darkness. You were spiritually blind. You were the one looking at Christians <clears throat> and making fun of them. <clears throat> Look at that knucklehead over there. That Jesus freak. What's wrong with that guy? And then all of a sudden, God opened your eyes. And now all of a sudden, man, you're filled with the light of Christ. He has illuminated your heart to understand the truth about spiritual things. You couldn't appraise those spiritual things when you were in darkness. But now all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is opening you to all the truths of Scripture and your life will never be the same. I will tell you that it's possible to be saved, come into the spiritual light, leave spiritual darkness, and then become dull of hearing, dull of seeing spiritually. You can be a Christian and stop growing. God does not force a Christian to grow. God simply provides everything that we need to grow. But we have to desire it, even as a believer. Uh, you take a plant, any plant. You don't, you don't do something that makes the, the seed open up and all of a sudden a little shoot come out. You, you, the farmer does nothing for that. All he does is he puts the seed in the ground and then the soil does its work and the sun does its work and the rains do. If, if that little seed just gets the right things, the nutrients and things that it needs, it will grow. So it is true for a Christian. But see, what happens is we deny ourselves sun. We deny ourselves water. We deny ourselves. We're not in the word growing. We're not in fellowship with people that love Jesus like us. By the way, there are no perfect Christians. There's not a single Christian here in this room that has it all together. Excuse me? No amens to that? Are you saying, well, pastor, maybe him and her, but, well, maybe my spouse, but me? Really? It's like that guy, I shared this a long time ago, that came to church and he had a special donkey. And he said, my donkey can, it knows scripture. People are looking at him like, what? He brings that donkey up on the platform. And he says to the donkey, how many days was Jesus in the tomb? And that donkey takes its front hoof and... And the people are like, what? How many days did it take God to create everything? Are you kidding me? And some little guy in the back of the church yelled out, how many hypocrites are in the church? And that donkey just went crazy, fell over and died. 
Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, we're all on a pilgrimage with God. Amen? We're on a journey. Coming into Christ in the light and becoming spiritually lit up doesn't mean that you don't fall short. It means that your heart's desire is bent towards God. That every day I live, I want to grow more and more. And I will fall short because I'm clothed in flesh and blood. But you know what? I'm not going to let that keep me from coming before my Father and keeping that relationship real. I'm not going to let it keep me from His Word. I'm not going to let it keep me from prayer. I want the water. I want the sunlight. I want fertile soil so that I can naturally, in the Spirit, continue to be transformed by God. See, that's what we have to be about, church family, is constant growing in God. So Satan can cause us to be spiritually blind. Sin can cause us to be spiritually blind. God's sovereign judgment causes us to be spiritually blind. Because of the sin, our allegiance to Satan and all those other things, men persistently reject God. And you know what God does? He judiciously hands them over to their sin. So you, in fact, are your own worst enemy. If you're living in a life of sin and you're not willing to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you, or at least you're not listening to the conviction of the Spirit, then God will at some point just hand you over to your sin. Go for it. You made your bed. You can, you can now sleep in it. In Matthew 13 through 16, chapter 13 through 16, this is just a sad, sobering reality. Let me share with you, church. In Matthew chapter 13 through 16, Jesus presented eight illustrations of the kingdom of heaven. Eight. Six of those eight focused on the rejection of Jesus Christ. He gave six illustrations of people who reject him as the light. And then only two where people have received him or accepted him. Okay? So basically what Jesus is saying, that the number of people who will come out of spiritual darkness into light is very small in comparison. Most people will not come to Jesus Christ on his terms of peace. In Jesus' day, when he lived, the most vocal rejection that he faced came from the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They were all against him. Those of the religious order were against Jesus. Here in chapter 16, our Lord has just left the region of Gentiles where he fed 4,000 men plus women and children, and now he's returned to the region of the Jews in a town called Magdala, located on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So now he's back in the region where Jewish people live, and as soon as he returns to the region of the Jews, guess who shows up? The religious leaders. They wouldn't think of chasing him over into the region of the Gentiles. That's a filthy world. We want nothing of it. We're clean. They're unclean. But as soon as Jesus returns to the land of the Jews, now they're willing to come to him. And they come with their, even after seeing the miracles and the signs that Jesus has performed, they come in their spiritual blindness and they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. And he replies and says in verse 2, when it is evening, you say it will be, there, be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs 
of the times. He's referring to his first coming. You, you, can, you can understand the sky, but I came from the sky. I'm the Messiah. You didn't get it. You don't perceive it. And then he calls them out for what they are. They're spiritually blind. Look what he says. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. People who really don't want to know the truth seek after signs. It's a cover-up. Yeah, show me a sign. What's that going to change? Signs never convert anybody. It may satisfy a person's curiosity, but they don't possess the power to save you. No sign can save you. The world says, if I see it, then I'll believe it. The Bible says, if I believe it, then I'll see it. We walk by faith, not by sight. Amen? But this group of guys who are spiritually blind are wanting another physical sign. You don't seek a physical sign for a spiritual change. The reality is they don't want the spiritual change. They just want to see something that they can possibly trap Jesus in and take him from the crowd and win the crowd back over. Problem isn't that the signs are themselves weak. Signs are not bad by themselves, but it's that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after them. That's the problem. The Bible never gives repeated examples of, of those who saw remarkable signs, yet those people never believed Jesus even finally said to the crowds, you're, you're, you're coming to me for just another sign. You're not really listening to what I'm saying. You're not receiving me as Messiah. You just want me to do another sign, another trick. See, signs are not the answer. And I'm not trying to, to put down when God gives us a confirmation through something. That's a wonderful thing when there's a confirmation from God of something we're doing. Let's say you take on a ministry, and before you know it, somebody walks up and says, I want to tell you something. Boy, God has gifted you in this. I see God in what you're doing. Doesn't that make you feel good? To know that God's confirming the calling that he gave you? There's nothing wrong with that. But when all you want is one sign after another, I need to see, I need to see, I need to see, I got to feel, I got to feel, I need to be touched in my senses, my five senses. Friend, Jesus said to Thomas after his resurrection, you're blessed, Thomas, because you get to see my handprints, my, or my nail prints in my feet and my hands. But more blessed are those who believe in me who never see. It takes much greater faith to walk with Jesus when you cannot see with your physical eyes. We need to be very careful that we not fall into the trap of making signs the way that we feel close to God, the way that we are right with God, the way that we sense that God's in what we're doing. Signs are not the answer. Jesus then said in the latter part of verse 4, and a sign will not be given it. I'm not going to give you the sign that you seek. You want something in heaven. Uh, I'm standing right here. You don't recognize me. So he said, he moves on. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to give you one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, he said back in Matthew chapter 12 that just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in death, and then he'll rise again. So Jesus is saying to them, you're not going to get the sign from heaven you want, but I'm going to tell you what you are going to get. You're going to have a sign that I am Messiah because God the Father is going to raise me from the dead. Now, they didn't understand that. 
they're spiritually blind. And the reality is, if Jesus took the time to explain, they still wouldn't believe it, even after he's raised from the dead. That's what I'm talking about. It's possible to be so spiritually blinded that you're not wanting to see the light. And God says, okay, I'll respect that. He doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to salvation and repentance, right? That's what the scripture says about Jesus. Yet many will not repent and will go to hell. Not because God wants it, but because man in his blindness chooses it. And then he moves further. He takes us in another direction here. Verse 5, And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that, be that because we did not bring any bread. Now listen, now his own disciples are thinking physically when he's speaking spiritually. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith. Look at that. See, what does he call out in them? Lack of faith, lack of spiritual sight. You're trying to understand principles that I'm teaching in a material way. And that's not what I'm trying to do. This has to be the hardest thing as a Christian. It has to be the hardest thing every day to get up and to go to work, go to school, whatever it is, and know that God wants by the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you spiritually through the day and then enable you to minister to others spiritually when we are surrounded by physical things. To try and walk spiritually in a world that's all physical, it's really hard. In fact, the reality is, unless the Holy Spirit helps you, you can't do it. But this is the this is the picking up the cross and following Jesus is every day yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit as I live in a material world. He's not saying you can't live in your material world. He puts you here. He gave us material things, the creation. He's not against the material things, but now that you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, he expects you to understand and walk as a spiritual being in a material world, rather than being like the world, which is very material-focused. That's hard. That's hard. And he goes further, and he says, but Jesus, but Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you picked up? Hey, why are you worried about bread? We've taken care of a ton of folks with just very little bread. Or the seven loaves of the 4,000. By the way, Jesus just confirmed that those two stories are not the same story, told differently. Have you ever heard somebody say that from the pulpit? Well, these are the same story. It's just that, two, you know, they're just shared a little bit differently, but really it's the... No, it's not. Jesus said that they're two different events. One was for the Jew, one was to the Gentile. And then he says, verse 11, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, physical bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Throughout the scripture, listen, 
uh, there's just no getting around it, uh, especially when you go back to the book of Exodus. Uh, when leaven was mentioned during Passover, and they said, you want to leave with unleavened bread. Leaven was the, was the product that would actually cause the bread to decay, to break down, and it would rise. And so he's saying, remove the leaven, remove the, the decay, remove the sin. Beware of the sin of the Pharisees. Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Don't, be, don't succumb to their material religious system. You are born of a spirit, not of this world. Therefore, walk in it. In John 3, Jesus, this happened a lot, by the way, that, that Jesus would speak and men would inter, try to interpret what he's saying in physical ways. In fact, that's what on the History Channel, when they take Bible stories and things that Jesus said, and then they try to blow it up, and they make it look like he's a real idiot because they're trying to describe it in the physical realm. Jesus never mentioned it in the physical realm. They're, so these guys who have their PhDs are trying to tell you what the Bible is saying, what Jesus, why Jesus is wrong. They don't get it. They're spiritually blind. And so even in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. What did Nicodemus, the spiritual religious leader, say to that? How am I going to go back in my mother's womb? He's thinking physically. Jesus wasn't talking physically. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth. Amen? John 4, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. What did he say at Jacob's well to this, this woman? He said, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would ask me, and I'd give you a drink. You'd never thirst again. And the woman goes, what? Where? Where is this water? Let me know where it's at so I can drink some, and then I'll never have to come out to this well again. She was thinking physically. He's speaking spiritually. Now, hey, listen, good news. She opened herself. The Holy Spirit opened her to, to understand that this is Messiah, and then she got saved right there on the scene. Pretty cool, huh? So that's a case of a spiritually blind person who God turned the light on. And she saw what was happening. Or how about in John chapter 6, Jesus said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you cannot have part of me. And the crowds thought he was talking about cannibalism. So they walked away. They're like, oh my goodness, this guy's a freak. This guy's weird. Now that would be on the History Channel, see? That's their interpretation. No. Again, Jesus was speaking of a spiritual realm, but the people couldn't see past the material Jesus is always calling you and I away from this material world. He desires to set you and I free from this world that holds, that holds on to us so tightly. What, what, did, what, what was it said in Hebrews about Jesus? That, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But he had to, he had to Paul said, I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm not going to be entangled by the sin that so easily tries to rise up and take me. I'm not going to let that happen. See, that's what you and I face every day in this world. And so, verse 13, he said, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, by the, by the way, again, now Jesus is leaving the land of the Jews. Why? 
Because the Pharisees met him up there. They're like, oh, he's like, oh my goodness, these guys won't quit. So then he goes back. Remember now he came from Tyre and Sidon, which was the land of Gentiles, went up to Magdala. Now he leaves Magdala, the land of the Jews, and he comes back down towards the land of the Gentiles. And he's in this area called Caesarea Philippi. Some think he went there just for a retreat. I don't think that's the case. If you understand Caesarea Philippi, it was an area that's associated with idol worship big time. Okay, uh, There was an area uh, in, in Caesarea Philippi where the temples of the ancient Baals were worshipped. In fact, there is a large hill in that region with a cavern, and they say that's the birthplace of the god of nature, Pan. So think about that. The god of nature had to be born inside of a cave. Doesn't sound like much of a god to me. See, man can only make something that's as good as him, which is not good. Our God is above us. He doesn't think like us. He is so far above us. He sees past, present, future all at one time. We can't see anything except what's right here in front of me. And that's you, right? We serve a great God. So Jesus takes his disciples to this area where all these world religions find their greatness. They find their history. They find their prominence. And in that backdrop... In that setting, look at verse 13, latter part. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now notice, he's not asking them what they think. He said, what are you hearing from people? What are people saying about who I am? And so they responded. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The one thing that each of those responses has in common is that they are all drastically underestimating who Jesus really is. So they're saying the people think you're just an, a great man. We wanna, they want to honor and respect you as a great man. No, wait a minute. That's not who Jesus is. He's not a great man. You're not really honoring and respecting him when you put him on the same level as these other created beings who served God. No, he's God. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Mm. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. That means Christos in the Greek. That's anointed one, capital A, Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the second person of the Trinity. You were with God in the beginning, and you created all things, and in you all things hold together. That's who you are. And before you start thinking, man, Peter, you know, for being a fisherman, he's a pretty sharp guy. He really gets it. Man, that guy's special. Maybe that's why the Catholic Church, they, they, they have St. Peter. He's the founder of the church. He's something else. Uh, well, before you go there, let's understand what Jesus said back to Peter. And Jesus said to him, not to the disciples, but to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. If there's any credit given for why Peter got it right and knew who Jesus was, it's because God the Father opened his eyes to see it. Jesus just said that. You didn't come up with that, Peter. You're not such a great guy. 
You couldn't get there on your own. My Father revealed that to you. Some of us get to thinking that somehow we're special, that God's going to do some great things in my life because, man, I'm cut from a different yoke, you know, and I've, I've just, I'm a, you know, we just kind of think that we, we, we're the cat's meow. And the, real, the reality is there's nothing special about any of us. We all smell the same. We look the same in God's eyes. What is that? Lost, dying, and headed for hell. Every human being. Until Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminates our hearts. And by His grace and grace alone, no works, He brings us into the truth about who He is. No man can take an ounce of credit for his salvation, and no human being can take an ounce of credit for the ministry of the Lord. This is not my church. This church doesn't belong to the elders of Bureau Bible Fellowship. This church doesn't belong to you. This is the Lord's church. Every church is the Lord's work, if it's a true church. Only God can take credit for the church. No man can lay his hand to it. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You're Peter. You're a, you're a rock. In other words, God has revealed to you and anyone who comes into Revelation builds his house on rock, not sand. If you don't have revelation from God, if you have not been spiritually made, made to see, you're building on sand. I don't care how, think, how strong you think your house is, you're building your life on sand. You have to have what Peter received. That is illumination from God the Father through, through Christ the Son and the Spirit. This is Jesus declaring to his followers that God's plan is still very much on schedule, regardless of the heightened questioning and criticism of the religious leaders. See, his ultimate goal, Jesus' ultimate goal, was not to set the Jews free from the Roman occupation or even to eradicate the corruptness of all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. His purpose was to seek and save lost people, to bring people out of spiritual blindness into spiritual light to today in this place by the work of the Holy Spirit to reach hearts in this room, those of you who have been in spiritual blindness, and he wants to illuminate you. He wants you to have your own Peter experience where you come into the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. See, you could know that your whole life. You could grow up in a church and always hear that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's not real to you. It's real to a parent. It's real to somebody else that said it. But you haven't internalized. It's not intimate to you that Jesus is the Son of God. You need to come into personal relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. That's when you begin to see spiritually. Now, it's interesting here what's happening. Because all of a sudden... Uh, he speaks of something. He says, I, I say to you that you are Peter. And then he tells Peter something. He says, upon this rock, I will build what? Read it for me, church. I will build Greg's church. 
I will build the elders' church. I will build the church for the people. No, no. It's my church. Jesus holds possession of the true church of Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, if we can go there, let me explain to you, the world doesn't have a clue what God's church really is or what it's supposed to be. In fact, I'm convinced there are churches that don't have a clue what the church is really about. But the term church should set us apart from all other institutions in, in, in the world. No other institution on the face of the earth was started by God. And God is not building any other institution. The only thing God's building on the earth is his church. That's what Jesus said. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. I'm building the church, okay? So that's, that's number one. Now, let me just help you. Please write this down. This is important for every believer to understand. The church has nothing to do with any of the things that oftentimes in the culture today make up church. It has nothing to do with bricks and mortar. It has nothing to do with a street address. It has nothing to do with logos. It has nothing to do with a sign out front. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It's not about buildings and grounds. That's not the church. Hey, look, we don't have buildings and grounds, but we meet every Sunday as the Lord's church. Amen? See, it's much more than that. Now, write this down, if you will. If you want to look closely at the word church, we'll find it its origin in, in the Greek word. It's ekklesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ekklesia, which comes from the verb root word kaleo, K-A-L-E-O, kaleo, kaleo. It means to call to call. The church is those who are the called. That's the church. Romans 8.28, those who are kaleo, called, according to his purpose. So the church is best understood as the called ones. If you want to know what's church, church is not a street name, it's not a, it's not a title of a church, it's not VBF. Church is the called ones. Those who have come out of spiritual darkness into the light of, of Christ through the grace of God by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that, and they gather together, that is God's church. That's the church. So we could actually, if we own building, uh, buildings, we could have our buildings destroyed and the church goes right on. Our, our identity is not the stuff it's not the programs, it's not the money, it's not the buildings, it's not the grounds. Our identity is the called ones. The called ones. We're not some human organization, the result of man's ingenuity or his power. God's church is never built by good religious, God-fearing people. Church is something that only God can assemble and build, and the delivery system of the gospel of Jesus Christ is through the church, God's work on the earth. That's it, okay? We're not called to be some kind of a community organization. We're not called to be some park or playground or program. We are called as people by God to deliver the gospel to the world. That's why the church exists. And the good news is, it says Jesus is building his church. Upon this rock, I will, future tense, build my church, which means Jesus is still building his church today. He's not building anything else. 
He's not building bigger government buildings. He's not big and bigger arenas. He's building the people. People coming in out of darkness into the light. Amen? Isn't that awesome? That's the church. That's VBF. VBF is the people. Nothing else. Nothing matters. Just people. That people come into the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the great, one of the great misunderstandings of Scripture. So many people today equate this to mean that they have power over spiritual demons. And they use it in that terminology, that somehow we have the power over demons. That's not at all what he's talking about here. The power for binding and loosing is something that the Jewish rabbi of that day would have been very familiar with. They bound or loosed an individual in the application of a particular point of the law. Jesus promises the same to Peter and the other apostles, that they would be able to set the boundaries authoritatively for the new covenant community. This was the authority that Jesus is giving them as the apostles, the first Level apostles to, and prophets to build a foundation. You don't believe it? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's speaking to everybody here. Having been built on, listen, we've, we the church have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who Jesus gave the right to bind and loosen based on the new covenant. In other words, they established what in the law still resided that we need to live by, the moral law, and what not to live by, what to be loosed from, the ceremonial dietary laws. They were the ones that Jesus gave the power to decide those things. Okay, Jesus is giving the permission and the authority to the first generation apostles to make the rules for the early church. That's what it means, binding and loosing. It has nothing to do. I'm going to bind you in Jesus' name. That's not what it's talking about. That's a total misrepresentation of the text. When you look at Scripture, don't just read the text, read the context. He's dealing with his disciples. He just revealed the greatest news that they could ever possibly receive, even though they wouldn't truly understand it right away. And that is that he's building a church. And in that church, he's going to give them, the first apostles, the ability to help decide what that new covenant really is, what to teach out of that new covenant, and how it changes people from the Old Testament law. And then he comes to verse 20, and he gives a warning not to the Pharisees. He warns his followers. This is something that we, right now, in this moment, we're going to come into a time of, of just quiet reflection, okay? This is the warning for us. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He just told his disciples why he came. The purpose, the plan of God is for me to die. To surrender myself on a cross before man, before God the Father. God the Father 
put Jesus the Son on the cross so that he could take on my sins and your sins and God the Father could bring judgment against sin. And he, Jesus took our sins. He never sinned, but he became sin for us. And the Father put him to death. Jesus, talk about the grace of God, the mercy of God. What is, what is grace? Or what's mercy? Not getting what you deserve. When Jesus went to the cross, he got what you and I deserved. We should have been hanging on a cross because the wages of sin is death. We all committed sin. Amen? Is there anybody here who's never committed sin? Raise a hand if you've never sinned ever. Okay, I'm, I'm thankful that nobody raised a hand. Jesus is the only one that qualifies. Yet, if I said, how many of you have ever sinned in your life? Raise a hand. Okay, if your hand didn't go up, either you're spiritually blind or you're half asleep. You're not listening. Okay, uh, we've all sinned. And yet, listen now, everybody that raised their hand, which is everybody in the room, Jesus took on all of that. He became that. And he, God poured out wrath and anger and judgment against him. And it, it killed him. Death. He suffered the price that we should have paid. So that when I say, how many of you are saints in the eyes of God today? If you're spiritually alert, you know what I'm speaking of is not whether you in the flesh have committed a sin from here or there, but that you know that Christ covered your sins and you took on the righteousness of Christ. In God's eyes, you're righteous. You're a saint. How many saints do we have today? Because of the mercy of God, he... he he took what we should have paid for. And then the grace of God, where the mercy of God is not getting what you deserve, the grace of God is getting more than you deserve. He didn't just save you from your sin and from the wrath of God. He makes you priest. He makes you his children. He gives you eternal life. And so now let's read this verse in our closing, and this is just going to be read. And then we're going to have a time, a moment of reflection in our hearts where if we've been in spiritual blindness, and today God has opened your eyes to see this, just respond by grace through faith. Just reach out and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you say that from your heart to God, you will be saved today. The Holy Spirit will reside in you for the rest of your life as a pledge that you belong in heaven. Amen. Here it is. Peter took Jesus aside after he said, I'm going to die for you. And, he re and, and began to rebuke him. Re here's Peter rebuking Jesus. Now, Lord, you know better than that. You're God. You're not gonna... And besides, I'm here. I'll protect you. What did Jesus say? He turned to Peter in verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, 
for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. To set your mind on, on God's interest, you have to be spiritually alive to see it. And then Jesus t- uh, said to his disciples, he laid it down, here it is, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. What a paradox. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find real life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus will return and he will reward you for your works that you have done in his name. The works that he prepared for you to do beforehand. He's not talking about you coming up with your own ideas of work. He's saying, I've already got to work for you. Just do what I've asked you to do. Just surrender to me. And for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with the angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Oh, I pray that for some of you. If you're spiritually blind, I pray that God would turn the light on, that you would be able to see with spiritual eyes, and knowing, if you see with spiritual eyes, that never again for the rest of your life will you be spiritually dead. You will, listen, even when your body finally gives out, here's the way it plays out. As your body breathes its last, you never break consciousness in your spirit and soul with God. You just go right on to be with the Lord. Oh, I want that for every one of us. I pray that if you're not a believer, that today, in this moment of quiet reflection, that you'll just reach out and receive the work of Christ for your sins. Be saved. Let's let's have a moment of silence. Don't reflect to the person of your left or right. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Stay in your own backyard. Father, in this moment of spiritual understanding, we, in a fresh way, hand over our lives to you. We're not getting saved again. Our salvation is for all eternity. But we are recommitting to live a life that is fully dedicated to Christ. We want the life that brings us into an abundance of freedom and liberty that only Christ can provide. And that's by us becoming your servants. 
So, Lord, use us. Save us and use us. That the church, Kaleo, the called ones, might go forth this week into this world, a material world, and bring spiritual light in places of darkness. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to say that if, if you have received Christ as your Savior today, heaven records that, okay? There's a rejoicing happening in heaven over your salvation. And we, the Bible, while, while your salvation occurs as an event inside of you, the Bible does speak of an event outside of you where you make a public profession of your faith in Christ. And that's where baptism comes in. And we're going to have a baptism service coming up a couple weeks after Easter. And we would love to add you to the list of people for baptism. So if you'll contact the church this week, you can go to info at org, And you can just let us know, hey, this week I received Christ. And uh, we'll add you to the baptism list. You can be baptized. We have a class so that you understand what baptism really means. We don't want anybody to do that without understanding but also, you can go to the back and you can just sign up and just say, I'd like to be baptized. Put your name on a list, okay? And if you're here today, you're visiting, and maybe you, this is your first time with us, we actually have little books. They're called Matthew, Prayer, or Matthew Journals. And they're little books that have the scripture text of Matthew plus a whole second page of just for note-taking. If you don't have one, go back. You can, uh, if you want to make a donation, that's great. But take one. We'd love to have you use it from week to week, okay? as we study, continue to study the, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're here today and you have a prayer request, we have uh, prayer partners, we have elders who will be glad to join you and pray for you today. So please come up and uh, receive prayer, all right? God bless each of you. Thank you for being here today. And, and hey, walk in the Spirit this week, amen. Bring light where there's darkness. God bless you.